we're back. This is Joe and TJ from the Schoolhouse 302, and you're listening to our Focus Ed podcast. Focus Ed is your educational leadership podcast. In every episode, it's our mission to focus on one aspect of teaching and leading in school so that you can make progress in your district, school, or classroom with even more knowledge, better understanding, and a clear direction on what to do next for your students and staff. In each show, we ask an expert guest to join us and we dissect their work and tons of other information about leading better and growing faster in schools. We're only doing 14 episodes per school year and we hope you'll listen to all 14. The guest list is incredible. Don't miss a single show and do us a favor. Please like, share, and follow Focus Ed on SoundCloud, iTunes, and our website, theschoolhouse302.com. And now for another episode of Focus Ed. Here we are with our guest, Dr. Pedro Naguara. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of Focus ED. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We're excited to have you here. So, Dr. Naguara, we're going to jump right into this. You, you co-authored a book called Excellence Through Equity. We want to start with a conversation about why you wrote the book, what, what it's about, what it means to have excellence through equity in schools, and what you want educators to take from it. Thanks for the question, and thanks for the opportunity to speak to school leaders in, in Delaware. I'm actually working with a district in Delaware at the moment, Cape Hamilton. So let me start by saying this, that since 2001 and the enactment of No Child Behind, the country's been focused on trying to close the achievement gap, as we've known it. The, the disparities in achievement that tend to correspond with race and socioeconomic status, and we haven't made much progress. And those of you who follow the news know that the NAEP scores, NAEP is the National Assessment for Educational Progress, were just released and they're flat. And then just today, the PISA scores were released. The PISA compares how we're doing in comparison to several other advanced industrialized countries and also show bad news, not much progress. And I would say it suggests two things that we're not doing that relate directly to equity. First, we're not addressing the huge gaps in opportunity that limit the ability to serve kids who come from disadvantaged backgrounds. That is, we know and have known for many years that the strongest predictor of how well kids will do in school is family income. Family income combined with parent education, particularly the education of a mother, is a strong predictor of how well kids will do. What that suggests is that more often than not, our schools reproduce existing patterns of inequality and privilege. The only way to interrupt that is if you expand opportunities to the kids who are more disadvantaged. That means making sure they have some of the things that more affluent kids get. So I'll just give you one example. Summer school. Most affluent kids are in enriched summer camp. They're traveling with their families. They're doing things that add to their development as a young person. Most poor kids don't get those opportunities. Many of them are not even in summer camp at all. They might be spending a lot of time watching TV or playing video games. So we have a, a, a loss of learning time. Combine that with the fact that we're one of few countries that doesn't invest in universal preschool, that we have big gaps in opportunity within schools in terms of access to strong teachers, access to rigorous courses, then you can see why these disparities have not closed at all, because we've done little to address those disparities and opportunity. 
So I'd say first and foremost, that's what we should be directing our attention to. How do we reduce the, the significant differences in learning time and in the opportunity to learn for kids? But the second part of this is, and this affects all kids, is I think we've been focused too much on the wrong thing. We've been fixated on achievement as measured by student test scores. And that's the wrong focus. And the reason why I say that is that test scores, if they're an accurate reflection of a child's ability, put a lot of emphasis on if, because we have no way of guaranteeing that children are even well prepared for the test or that they are able to type properly in responding to a test. But if in fact the, the scores are give us some a sense of, of a child's ability, then the real issue is what are we doing to, to change the learning opportunities for kids. And here, I would say we have not focused enough time and attention on getting kids stimulated, tapping into their natural curiosity, getting them more actively engaged in learning in the classroom. And that's true for all kids. Many of our high achieving kids who get good scores get to college and, and struggle because they can't write. They haven't developed the independence or the critical thinking skills that they need. And that's because of the education they've had, which focused too much on preparing for a test. The test, and I'm not against assessment. I think we need to assess kids to know how well they're doing. But the assessment should inform instruction and should tell us what we need to do more of. One thing that's clear is kids aren't reading enough. And that's one of the reasons why the scores are so flat. Just ask the typical kid, what are you reading? How often are you reading? How often are you writing? Our literacy skills have not developed because we simply haven't given those kids books to read that will tap into their imagination. You think about the way in which a Harry Potter produced a generation of readers for so many children across the country. Well, there are still lots of good books out there, some of which are old classics and new books. We need to get books into the hands of kids. We need to get them reading. We need to get kids out in the world applying what they've learned so they can see how knowledge matters, how it shapes their lives, We've got to do more to stimulate our children. And I would say that's not been the focus of our work. We've been focused too narrowly on raising test scores and boring kids in school. That's not going to get any improvement at all. So if we're serious about equity, and we need to be, because the future of this country is going to be determined by how well we educate all kids, not just those from wealthy backgrounds, then we're going to have to go back and ask, what are we doing? What do we need to do differently? And I'd say we have to focus more on those two things, the opportunity to learn, and creating more stimulating learning environments for children. Thank you, Dr. Navarro. I, this is a room full of practitioners, and I think most would agree with you wholeheartedly with both of those issues. And, you know, being over assessment and accountability myself for seven years in my previous job before my current role, I too thought very often we were just testing too much without results. You know, you spend a lot of time, though, with practitioners working specifically with districts. Do you recognize some of the barriers that districts have overcome to take the initial steps to addressing these two primary concerns that you've identified? Can you give us any of the, the nuggets or details to some just initial steps that we could take? Because I, I think we agree with this premise. We sometimes fall flat on the how. So one of the reasons why we did the book, Excellence Through Equity, was we wanted to draw attention to schools and districts and classrooms where the kind of work I've just described is happening. So let me describe one of those districts, Abington, Pennsylvania. And it's actually not far from Delaware, so you can go visit. 
Abington is right outside of Philadelphia. It's a suburban district and it's, it's diverse. It's diverse socioeconomically. It's got a, a significant affluent population, but they also have a significant low-income population. And it's one of the few districts in the country that has been consistently closing gaps in achievement for the last several years. Not surprisingly, the former superintendent, Amy Sickle, was superintendent of the year on a couple of different occasions for the state of Pennsylvania. What they've done is they really focus on the two issues I, I just mentioned. They focus on creating the conditions in schools that are conducive to good teaching and learning. They focus on increasing access to rigorous courses and then making sure that kids get support in those courses so they're not set up to fail. They focus on making sure kids are participating in extracurricular activities. We know from the research that kids who are involved in music, in sports, in theater, do better than kids who are not involved because it increases their sense of attachment and belonging to school, and it develops lots of other important attributes like discipline, teamwork, and, and a sense of responsibility. So when you look at a place like Abington and you see the progress that they've made, two things stand out. First of all, by, move, by focusing on, on equity, all kids have benefited, not just the kids who are on the bottom. And this is important because very often affluent parents are afraid of this discussion. They're afraid that any focus on equity will come at the expense of their kids. And if, that, if that's what they perceive, they will block it, they will fight it. In Abington, they've shown everyone can benefit and everyone can improve when we focus on equity, which is about addressing the needs of each child instead of treating kids based on broad generalizations about them and their ability. But the other thing we can learn from Abington is that by providing clear guidance to schools and to teachers, you can get better results. That is that too many schools, I would say, use pressure as a strategy for improvement. They use threats. They, they tell a school or a, a group of educators that if you don't improve, you know, we'll do something to you, something bad will happen. We'll take over your district or we will fire the principal. I've never seen pressure improve a school. You have to build the capacity of the educators. You have to look at what's getting in the way. And since the State Department of Education is putting on this event, I want to encourage the State Department to ask itself, what is it doing to help the schools that it knows are not performing? It's not enough to just let everybody know this school or this district is in trouble. The state has a responsibility to help those schools and provide better guidance on how to meet the needs of students. And that's what we can learn from the places that are making more progress. That kind of work is occurring. For us to make progress, that was awesome, Dr. Aguara. We have a challenge here for the Department of Education. We also have a room full of Delawareans who are probably going to call Abington School District uh, <laughs> before the end of the evening. So I hope, sure, ready. Make a range of visit. <laughs> I hope they're ready for the, the bus loads that we're going to send to see that work. And, and again, thank you. You've identified a few barriers. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, I think there are a lot of schools that are throwing around the term equity more often, and you mentioned access, and you did mention some of the barriers, but are there other barriers that you're seeing that we need to overcome or that school districts have overcome that have just created the challenges? Because in most schools, as Joe said, we agree with these concepts, but we're still trying to battle some of the old ways that we've done business. Are there common barriers and strategies that you've seen to overcome them? Yeah, several. I'll just give you a couple examples. One is we typically, in many schools, assign the, the, the newest teachers or the weakest teachers to work with the most challenging kids. There's absolutely no research to support that, but we do it. We do it to appease teachers with more seniority, as if teaching kids that don't need much help is a reward. We do it because the parents 
of the kids who are struggling don't put pressure or can more be, be more easily ignored. And this is this compounds the problem. The efficacy of the teachers make a huge difference. I often say, you know, as a, as a, a faculty member who teaches, we produce very good novices at UCLA. We don't produce master teachers. And I always ask the district, why do you take our novices and give them the most difficult job? We don't do that to pilots. We don't take a pilot who's just learned and say, you're going to fly tonight during the storm because nobody else wants to go, right? We don't do that to doctors, but we do it to teachers over and over again. And then we wonder why the kids aren't performing and why the teachers want to quit after a year or two because they've been set up to fail. So that's one way. I think the second thing that's very common has to do with school discipline. In most schools, all you have to do is look at the data. We disproportionately punish the kids with the greatest needs. So look at your data. And I'd ask the educators in the room to look at the kids who are being suspended the most, who are being referred the most. How many of them are special ed students? How many of those kids are, are from families that are in poverty or recent immigrants that don't speak English? And what we see when we look at the data is it's totally ineffective. That is, if the goal of discipline were to change behavior, then why are we punishing the same kids over and over again? And I'll give you the answer. It's because we're not addressing the cause of the behavior problem. We just respond to the behavior. And one of the things we should know is if you don't address the cause of the problem, the problem doesn't go away. In fact, it may get worse. So if you have a child, for example, who is acting out because they can't read and they're embarrassed by being called on in front of their peers, they may want to go to the office. And if there's no reading specialist waiting for them in the office, what happens? They fall further and further behind. Same thing happens. We, we suspend kids that don't even like school, as if that's a punishment. So they're at home watching television or playing video games, and then we wonder why their behavior hasn't improved. Well, why should it? We haven't even addressed the cause of the problem. And so I don't want to suggest that the, the cause is simple, because in some cases they're quite complex. But if we know a child is acting out because they're abused or neglected at home, sending them home is not going to be the solution. We're going to have to get more creative and think about how do we address the unmet needs of that child if we want to see behavior improve. So that, those are just two examples, but I, I, I'm sure they resonate with many of the educators because they're common to schools throughout America today. Oh, it's a great point. When we can reframe students' behavior as a way that they're communicating to us and signaling, I think we have a better opportunity and create a space in which we can really help that child. And you know, we've had this conversation in my district quite often. We're not ignoring the behavior. We're not justifying the behavior. We're just reading this as a signal and we're treating it different. And not just that this student is acting up for just any particular reason. It's a manifestation of something. But that takes a lot of time. I, I wanna circle back, Dr. McGuire. You had talked a little bit also that we're boring kids and you know i no doubt that that could start a wave of controversy as well but if you were to improve the student experience in every school what would you want to see done so i'll put it real clear and simple we have to teach kids the way they learn instead of expecting them to learn the way we teach mm. most kids don't learn through lecture you watch a kid who gets a new video game. They don't download a lecture to understand how to play the game. They get on the game and they start playing. They learn by doing. They might ask a friend, how did you play the game? They might go on YouTube to get some uh, insights. 
They learn through their mistakes. We need classrooms where it's safe for kids to make mistakes, where they're actively involved in learning. And most importantly, kids learn through mastery. When you're playing a video game, the reason why you can advance to the higher level is because you've mastered the lower level. You know what happens when kids don't experience mastery in schools? They get pushed along and they can't do the more advanced work because no one has even made sure they're competent at the foundation. They don't have a foundation, multiplication and, and division, so they can't do algebra. So, you know, it sounds so obvious, but when you look at schools and what we're doing, very often what you see is teachers talking at kids, kids expected to sit passively and do as the teacher tells them. We, we penalize kids for talking to each other, even though we know that's how you actually learn something is by asking questions and talking to someone. And there's a difference between talking about the task at hand and versus talking and being a distraction. But we need to give teachers clearer guidance on how to get kids engaged in learning, how to create classrooms where kids are excited and motivated. We don't give much guidance on that. And if I would say this, if you ask the kids right now, and it takes courage to ask this of children, where are they learning? They'll tell you. They'll tell you the classrooms where teachers have them challenged, where they're stimulated, where they're excited to go in because they're doing great things. But here's the other side. They'll also tell you where they're bored stiff, where they're not learning a thing. And that's why it takes courage because now that you know, then what do you do about it? How do you support that teacher? And how do you address that problem? Because too often that nothing is being done. And that's one of the ways in which kids that deny the opportunity to learn because we're not teaching them the way they actually learn. We focus on the deficits, we don't build their strengths. And when we do that, when we have a strength-based approach and we're act getting kids actively engaged in the work of learning, then classrooms look a lot different. I'll give you one more example. We've known for a long time that if you tap into the natural curiosity of children, they're more likely to become independently motivated learners. That is that you tap into that desire to learn that all children have. The most common question you've ever heard from any three-year-old is why. Why do I have to take a bath? Why is the sky blue? They're curious, naturally. We need to nurture that curiosity so that kids continue to ask questions rather than see, accept the world as it is. And uh, I believe that when we do that, we will start to see outcomes for kids change and these disparities reduced. That's fantastic. So learning through mastery, a number of things here, including the courage and the leadership. I mean, what we talk a lot about with our groups is leadership. This podcast is generally about educational leadership. So you mentioned a few things, and we also know, Dr. Aguirre, that you are steeped in the research. We opened here with, with over 200 articles, several uh, books written. Do you have a place, a favorite place to go for resources or a favorite resource for teaching, learning, and leadership in schools? Would you recommend an institute, a book, a person that we could maybe lean on besides yourself for this concept of courage <laughs> and also mastery? Is there a place that you go oh, when yeah, you're there, thinking there about these? Lots of places. I, I would recommend Edutopia. Edutopia is a site set up by the... Um, Ugh, blanking on his name, the guy, Star Wars director, producer. But go to Edutopia and you, you can get videos on how to do product-based learning, on how to do restorative justice. So it gives teachers very clear examples on how to change their classrooms. So that's an excellent resource. I'd also recommend a site called The Cult of Pedagogy, uh, created by Jennifer Gonzalez. Excellent ideas, suggestions, interviews, tools for teachers 
on how to, for example, provide useful feedback to kids on their homework and how to assign homework in a meaningful way. So there are great tools out there that we can tap into. Those are just two, but I think they're excellent resources. Dr. Nguar, for you to continue to make an impact in education and doing the work that you're doing, what does the next three to five years look like for you? What would you like to see done to make you feel like you're truly making an impact, you know, with boots on the ground individuals? So, you know, part of the reason why I agreed to do this interview today is because I believe that if there are more states now that recognize that they need to shift direction, that, you know, the ESSA gives us the permission now to have more flexibility in how we assess and, and the ways we work with schools. And there are several states that are now embarking on some new approaches, California, New Mexico, Oregon, and I hope Delaware will be one of them that's willing to, to say, look, what we've been doing for the last almost 20 years has left us where we are and we need to try something new. And I, I would say that if the state can do more to listen to the educators, the people on the ground who are in our classrooms, and, and use that to inform the approach the state takes in education policy, then Delaware could be a leader for the country. And we need some leaders that are showing us that we can create schools that we're all proud of and where kids are excited about learning. That's great. Thank you. And thank you for partnering with Delaware. And thank you for being on the podcast. And we're definitely, we definitely want to be leaders in this work. And our Department of Education is supportive of it. So we're super excited to, to use this. We have just a few more questions for you. And one is, as educators look from within, and you mentioned Edutopia, and you mentioned code of pedagogy, is there an outsider of education who you support or who you follow? Somebody who's not an educator, but who kind of looks in from the outside and maybe has an influence, or even not a leader from outside of education that you would say, follow this and you'll lead better? Well, you know, a good friend of mine is Michael Fullen. Michael Fullen is, he's, he's in education, but he's a Canadian. Um, he just sent me his new book. And you guys know Fulham? Yes. <laughs> yeah, very well. So Fulham and I have been friends for a long time. And I would say that our thinking is very aligned. And, you know, he's written the, the book Coherence about the, the great progress they made in Toronto by, by doing many things I described today. Uh, he's certainly a thought leader that I've learned a lot from. But I've also recently spent some time in New Zealand. New Zealand is one of the places where restorative practices were first developed and implemented learned a lot from visiting schools there about how to work with the cultures of the children. Most children now in New Zealand are learning to speak Maori. That's all children, the indigenous language of New Zealand. But they're also learning how to build a sense of community in schools where children feel appreciated and respected and where they're accountable for their behavior. So there's a lot we can learn from visiting other countries and from interacting with other educators in, elsewhere in the world. Because you know, we're all addressing many of the same issues and challenges, but I think that there's some fresh ideas that we need to embrace because I think in the United States, we benefit stuff. We're big fans of Michael Fullen. The book Nuance is, is a phenomenal book as well that's relatively new also. So thank you for that. And that is a good, good idea to really stretch our thinking and go beyond outside even our borders and look at what just great success stories are out there. Final question, Dr. Naguaro, is there a book you would like someone to write based on an issue or something that you're also seeing? It's just high time that it, it gets written. Question, because um, I'm gonna, I'm, 
I, I'm laughing because I'm 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 getting ready to write another book. Right? So <laughs> hopefully it'll be me that writes yeah. it. And it's a lot about what I've talked about today. You know, how do we begin to rethink education? You know, I started this center at UCLA, the Center for the Transformation of Schools. And we deliberately stayed away from the idea of reform because reform has become almost a bad word. It's a kind of tinkering with a bad model. And we think about transformation because I, I think in many ways the whole way in which we approach the topic of education needs to be changed. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my students right now is working with formerly incarcerated youth, kids who experience a lot of failure in school. And what he's learning is just by building relationships with these young, mostly young men, and tapping into their insights and experiences, he can get them to do things, to read books that, that many of them would have rejected before, and to write and to undertake complex tasks simply because they have established a sense of trust as a part of a learning community. And I would say those kinds of approaches are what we need to write about more because I think the only way we're gonna see improvement is if people have a clear sense of what direction to move into instead. So my goal is to write books that provide that kind of guidance and hopefully inspiration. It's fantastic. We really appreciate you hanging with us today, Dr. Aguara, on Focus Ed. We can't say enough about the work that you've done and the partnerships that we've created and your answers today have been fantastic. Is there anything else that you would like to add for our live audience and our listening guests? No, not much. I just think that, like I said, I, I, my hope is that, you know, that, that, that the educators in Delaware can begin to call for a shift in the direction the state's taken. I know that there was a big opt-out movement in Delaware where many parents were questioning the amount of testing their kids were being subjected to. But rejecting that is not good enough. We have to talk about what we should do instead. And I think educators could be in the lead on offering an alternative approach that will be more successful in reaching our children. So I encourage you to continue to do that work there in Delaware. That's fantastic. Thank you. We are going to take the lead here in Delaware. You heard it here on Focus ED, Dr. Pedro Naguara. Everyone, can we get a, a hearty round of applause for, for his work? All right. Thank you. We're not going to take any more of your time. We are going to give away some of your books here and have a, a conversation with these folks. And we really, really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me and happy holidays, everybody. And now a word from our sponsors. Hey, Joe, you know what leaders need these days? What's that, TJ? Sleep. A good night's rest. Self-care. We've heard it over and over and over again from our guests on the podcast that you can't pour from an empty cup. Leaders need sleep. One of the number one ways you can replenish yourself and lead better is a good night's sleep. I hear you, but you know what? I'm so tired. I don't even like thinking about you know, getting a good night's sleep. But, you know, do tell, how do we go about getting better sleep? Well, I think that's part of your problem is you need a better bed. It always starts with the bed. That's why we recommend Ghost Bed, our sponsor with 30,000 plus five-star reviews. Their patented sleep and cooling technology gets you to sleep faster and longer than any other bed. That's right. And their handcrafted mattresses come with a hundred and one night at home sleep trial and a two times the industry standard warranty. They're absolutely certain that their beds will work for you. And with free shipping within 24 hours of your purchase, 
It's fantastic uh, support from the company. And guess what? Just for being a listener at the Schoolhouse 302, you get 30% off with the use of our code SH302 at checkout. You go to ghostbed.com. You get some sleep so that you can lead better and grow faster. You use SH302 at checkout. Absolutely. And last thing, even if you don't need a bed, you're thinking, wow, I would love to try out ghost bed, but I just bought a bed. Refer someone else for a bed at ghostbed.com. You'll get a hundred bucks for helping someone else get a good night's rest. Wow. That's 30% off with SH302 code at ghostbed.com a hundred bucks for your referral. If you get somebody else a good night's sleep, better sleep for you, better leadership, ghostbed.com. You can't beat it. Ghostbed.com. We like to keep it real. <laughs> we keep it real. We know we're in a school now. <laughs> yeah.